Live to see it, friends, and welcome to the world transformed. This program is your guide to an astounding future that lies ahead, one that will be here sooner than you think, and one that you have an important role to play in bringing about. At the world transformed, we want to introduce you to what may be the greatest transformation of them all, the one that begins with considering and acting on the almost limitless possibilities that lie before us and that ends somewhere beyond the reach of the human imagination. So, when does this amazing future begin? Well, today is the day. My name is Phil Bowermaster, and with me in the virtual studio is my co-author, co-futurist, and co-host, Stephen Gordon. Hello, Stephen. Hey, Phil. How are you? Well, I am super fantastic. Happy Monday. How are you, my friend? <laughs> I'm doing great. In the start of another great week, and we've got a and we've got a great guest. Why don't we just bring her on out? We don't have to. It's it's hard to get the week off to a better start than we're getting it off tonight because we're so happy to welcome P.J. Manny back to the show. P.J. is the author of the best-selling and Philip K. Dick Award-nominated Revolution book win in the Phoenix Horizon series. She's a former chairperson of Humanity Plus. She's the author of Empathy in the Time of Technology, How Storytelling is the Key to Empathy, and a frequent guest host and guest on podcasts, including The World Transformed. She's worked in motion picture PR at Walt Disney Touchstone Pictures, story development and production for independent film production companies, including movies such as Hook, Universal Soldier, and It Could Happen to You. Plus, she was a writer for two of the coolest TV shows of all time, Hercules, The Legendary Journeys, and Xena, Warrior Princess. PJ is a noted geek on the science fiction convention circuit, and when not contemplating the future of humanity, she's a mother, wife, and an education activist in California. Her new book is a sequel to Revolution, and it's called Identity, and we're going to be talking with her about that tonight. PJ, welcome back to The World Transformed. Thank you, guys. Hooray! I love that we're doing this. <laughs> well, we are super excited, always excited to have you on the show, and super excited that we get to be part of your whole like rollout of your book. You know, we got to do it the last time, and we're, and we're doing it this time. So before we get into the book, before we get into, you know, spoiling all the plot details and, and, I, and I tell <laughs> the end and all that kind of stuff, um, what have you learned? What's the difference now getting the second one out? They say the second one is much harder than the first one. Have you found that to be true, or where are you with that whole thing? Well, because I wrote the second one much faster than the first one, yes, it was definitely harder, uh, less time to really think and contemplate, really, you know, sticking with the contractual obligations to my publisher. Uh, so yes, that's, uh, there, there comes a point where you just have to say, I hope it's okay. Well, uh, it's more than okay. Um, it's a fantastic read. I want to say, um, it, it, you wrote it faster. I felt like I read it faster. Is it shorter or is, is just, yes, it just that it, much of a shorter. page turner? Yeah, it's shorter because publishers like books around this length. Their sweet spot's about 90,000 words. I think uh, um, Identity was about 100,000 words, whereas Revolution was 144,000 words. Uh, ah. So there was a general expectation that the next books would be somewhere around the 100 mark. I can't get down to the 90 mark. It seems impossible. <laughs> You'd have to leave too much good stuff out, yeah. But, but, but I have to say, yeah. As I'm as I'm plowing through it, it reminded me of going from Dune to Dune Messiah, right? It was like that's an interesting observation. Okay. Yeah. You know, from the well, from from the, the the book that lays out all the groundwork to the book that can just be action, right? It's like here right, we go. exactly, exactly. Yeah. We yeah, we know who the players the are. Let's too. start moving right. the pieces around on the board yeah. and have some fun. Yeah, the, yeah, the, what, the world is set up. Uh, you, your playground, your sandbox is there. So you just. Uh, it's playing at this time. So, yeah, That's that. exactly true. And uh, so much of that, that 
world is not just the actual, you know, the, the socioeconomic political world, but it's also the technological world. So I get to then just spin out how, how these technologies develop, the unintended consequences. Well, actually, the unintended consequences are on every scale, economic, social, political, technological, all of it. Uh, and boy, there are a lot of un- unintended consequences. Yeah. Well, it's, it, it, one, one of the things that's fun about reading this is just the layers and layers of, oh, I didn't see that coming, or, ooh, I, I, had, I didn't think about what that would be like, you, you know what I mean, kind of uh, stuff going on. And I was thinking as I was reading this, it's like you had to write all that, right? So you're, you know, <laughs> do, do you have, yes. I, I'm picturing a study with, you know, one of those, you know, photographs and yarn deals, like people who are obsessed in the movies. I mean, are you, you know, are you doing all that kind of stuff? How do you keep everything straight, and how do you work through all the implications of this kind of stuff? Part of it is stuff as a futurist that I'm exploring intellectually regardless uh, because human enhancement, the transformation of people into cyborgs uh, and intellectual entities into non-organic substrates, all of that is stuff that I've already been fascinated by. Uh, but then you have to keep up with all the other little bits that are going on all the time around us in uh, defense and weaponry, in computer advancement, in all kinds of things, even just the social issues around certain kinds of robotics. And I believe, for instance, that like the porn industry drives technology, certainly media technologies always has, uh, the sex industry will start to drive the robotics industry. So is it okay to talk about the sex robots, or should we not? I'm fine. I, no, that's fine. I think that, you know, it happens pretty quick. I, I, <laughs> I, I just, all I want to say, not to spoil it too much, but sex robots, if you're interested in that subject, play heavily into this book in a very interesting and unexpected way and wonderful way, I must say. Just uh, totally, um, the, the, the whole thing reminded me, um, when we talked to uh, uh, Ramez about his series of novels, the one that, that ended with Apex. I can't think of what the first one was called. Crux. Nexus. Nexus was the first one. Thank you. There's this kind of running gag about the hero that he's always bringing up this Bruce Lee program to help him fight, right? And mm-hmm. it never works, right? You know, he always gets his ass kicked no matter, uh, no, 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 no matter what happens. It's just this kind of hapless, you know, he's got the software, he tries running it, and it doesn't work out. And I was thinking, the, the whole uh, sequence around the sex robots had that kind of feel to it for me. It was kind of a, you know, it, interesting, important, serious stuff going on. But I was just laughing the whole time, okay? I mean, you, know, you just, you know, every time somebody says something that brings you back to the, oh, that's right, he's wearing a, you know, this is, this is a sex robot we're talking about here. It's just, uh, that must have been a lot of fun to write, I guess. It is a lot of fun to write. And um, I do think that at some point we are going to have sex robots who don't just kind of lay there and say, hey, baby. Uh, we're, you know, they will have a much more active role in our lives and, we can already see, you know, this in stories about uh, men in Japan who want to marry their their sex dolls and things like that. And and I, I don't, I'm not looking at this in a Puritan way at all. Um, I I actually feel for people for whom they feel this is, you know, this is the kind of relationship they're capable of, and that's it. And 
I had fun with it, but I tried not to in any way, shape, or form be humiliating about people who enjoyed using them. Oh, no, I, I didn't get that impression at all. Not at all. Uh, but but there's just something, I mean, let, let me just throw a word out here. The word is dildo, okay? There's something inherently funny about having a dildo show up in a, in a story, right? You know, I mean, right, right, yes. A giant walking one, no less. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, you, just, you can't help it, right? It's just. It's, it's amusing. I, I find that if I ever want to make Phil laugh, I just, you know, I just say that. And, you know, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I prefer not to be called one, but uh, you know, whatever works. But, hey, we probably jumped a little bit ahead of ourselves. But we're so okay. excited about the sex robot that we didn't we, – we should actually wind back and get a quick author-allowed synopsis of the book. But maybe before that, we should just real quick – run back over Revolution just real fast. So give us your author-approved, non-spoiler description of Revolution, and then we'll take it from there and talk about identity. Revolution is a techno-thriller revenge story about Peter Bernhardt. He's a bioengineer who creates some incredible brain-computer interfaces and gets invited by the Phoenix Club to work with them, and develop his company. Because at the very beginning, again, it's not a spoiler, at the very beginning, something terrible has happened with the technology he has previously invented. He's persona non grata. And the club swoops in and says, we're going to take care of you. You have more great ideas. We're going to be your bank. Let's go. And he discovers he's at the center of a very deep conspiracy. And the book is really a combination of the Count of Monte Cristo and Frankenstein, where Frankenstein is, in fact, both the doctor and the monster. Oh, right, so, exactly. Yes. So he's forced to seek revenge on these people who were very close to him and have betrayed him, left him for dead, and he has to turn himself into something that is more than human to save himself and the rest of the country and potentially the rest of the planet. That's revolution. No, that's revolution. Okay, now, identity. <laughs> Now, identity, as, as Stephen said, you've set that world up. So we've got this guy who's more than human, and he goes by multiple names, which is one of the fun things about him. He is now off and ready to have adventures. So tell us what you can and will about identity, just in terms of what people So I've left, I've, you know, it's, it, I'm, I'm, I'm going to assume that your listeners have read Revolution, and if you haven't, you should. Um, because what happens at the end of Revolution is, that our protagonist, who now goes by the name of Thomas Paine, is no longer human. And he's been uploaded. He's a, he's a, a new sentient entity. And now he's called out of his, how would one say, silicon retirement <laughs> um, to save everyone again when he realizes what's been done, what's going to happen, what are the unintended consequences he created, and that the people he thought he discovered were his enemies are in fact out wreaking havoc again. He thought he had dealt with them in revolution, and he hadn't. So now he's in a much broader canvas. It's an international canvas, uh, not just the United States. And he's trying to stop something he doesn't understand. 
he can't believe it's actually happening and doesn't understand and comes up with some new sidekicks along the way. Uh, and it becomes a great conf- confrontation between himself, what he thinks he is, what other people think he is, and what he's capable of doing in this new world. All right. Very good. Now, that, see, that actually tells quite a bit. And That's all right. That, that, that gives us a good, you know, what not to say to spoil it. One thing I, I do want to mention, when you, when you mentioned that he, he takes on a new uh, group of sidekicks, just wonderful characters all the way around. And when we talked about Revolution, when it first came out, I observed that I felt that I was reading a, at least homage to The Count of Monte Cristo. And I asked if at some point we would see The Musketeers. And I have my answer now. So uh, that's all. Ah, yes. <laughs> well, I have a thing for Dumas. Uh, you know, Alexander Dumas, he's, he's the man, man. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm a fan of both you and him. And so it's very gratifying when uh, I, feel like I'm, I, I feel like I'm getting personal fan service from you. Okay, PJ? <laughs> <laughs> I was reading that. I was like, wow. You know, I asked her about this, but. I mean, it's just—it's really—it's really well done. It's really well put together, and it's just—it that, that part of it is a load of fun, and I'm sure other people have picked up on probably more of it than I have. But it's—it's—it's—it's uh, uh, it's, it's, it's great to see kind of those little arcs going too. Now, you said the first one was a cross between Count of Monte Cristo and Frankenstein. Is this one a cross between anything, or it's just you know well, kind of carrying Franken- the Frankenstein theme carries through all three books. Mm-hmm. This notion that we can create things but what's our responsibility to those things that we create? And what is also our responsibility, not just to the creation, but to, our, to the implied purpose for those creations? And in this case, because he's both the doctor and the monster, that he often doesn't have time to think about the ethics. He's too busy using himself as a tool and a weapon. And when the ethics confront him, he really gets hit in the face. Um, Because there is a cowboy approach, which I have always taken with this character, because, you know, he's fixing himself, in essence, on the run, where in in whatever uh, format he is active in. Right. And to be able to see him do make this creation and not dealing with the potential ethics until it's too late. I think there's actually a reality to that where not so much in traditional scientific method, scientific approach to, to creating these kinds of things because they have to go through um, institutional review boards and all kinds of ethical uh, issues are brought up. But there is a sense in, in a lot of scientific research where people don't want to talk about what the ethical implications of this thing are. They really just want to show it can be done. Or they'll say, like in Revolution, um, that he was creating it for Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and a host of neurodegenerative diseases when, in fact, it could be used for other things. And in medical science, we definitely see a process from the theoretical the experimental, the use as a therapy, the proof that the therapy works and is safe, 
and then it becomes something ubiquitous. And you can see this in things like Botox and a whole host of, of other reapplications of medicine. Right. And it's, it, it's interesting because you, you balance the, you know, the benefit with the risk, right? There's, there, there, there's always that side to it. But we've got this interesting era we're in now where discovery is occurring so quickly, we're finding, for example, new uses for drugs that have been around for a long time, right? So there's this... Oh, absolutely. You know, so, so there's this whole issue around not only can I, you know, how can I apply this for what I said it was for, but can I, is it okay if I applied for this other thing? Because it's a really good thing too, right? And, and, and that's something we're facing just with known quantities, right? Not with a complete rewrite of the whole human neural architecture into a different substrate, right? Which <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, mine goes a little further. <laughs> yeah. um, yes, uh, we're, we're doing this, and, and it's all about, finding new sources of income for drugs that are losing their, um, their copyright, their patent, and going into generics. Right. Uh, if you can come up with a new use, you get to keep it. Right, right. So there's, a, there's a, obviously a great monetary desire for pharmaceutical companies to do this, but just even in, in the world of brain-computer interfaces, um, there are many people working on them who – the last thing they wanted to talk about was uploading and brain manipulation and all the other issues that might come along with it for a long, long time. And then that broke a little bit only in the last few years where they started talking about, well, if we do this, here are some incredible implications of what we're doing. But they only bring up the incredibly fabulous implications and rarely discuss uh, things like, for instance, uh, this is going to be in the new book, so uh, not that it's really a spoiler, but it's, it's, a, it's being talked about right now. So we know about fingerprints and we know about retinal scans and iris patterns and vein patterns and even gait patterns. Well, brain prints are coming. And there are a variety of ways to do it through EEG, through uh, blood vessel analysis. But one of the things that they feel pretty confident about is that eventually, when we understand the connectome, we'll be able to use that print and break privacy with it, brain privacy. We'll know things about the brain, that person's brain we took the brain print from. So it's like, if you, you know, it would be like doing a set of fingerprints and someone looking at them and going, oh, well, let me tell you all about you, your history, your dreams. So and, how how do you get a brain print? I mean, what is it? Because it's not like you're going to go in and scan the whole brain, right? What, what, no, how, so there's what the two it? ways that have been done, and this has actually been done for decades, but they, don't know what, they didn't know what to do with it. They didn't have it, – it wasn't advanced enough to actually do anything with. Um, the first one they did was an EEG. So they literally put sensors on your head, and they monitored the electrical patterns in your brain, and they would show you things to prompt thoughts, and it was almost like a lie detector when they first started using it. So, for instance, if they showed you something that was connected with a crime and you didn't have the appropriate reaction, you didn't, you, you didn't generate the appropriate electrical reaction, right. 
they realized that it wasn't in your brain. Surprised by, uh, for example, you weren't surprised by a particular piece of information because you already knew. Or vice versa, you were you were shocked and disgusted and and stunned, and so exactly. And the other way they do it now is that they monitor blood flow in the brain through an fMRI. Hmm. And there's just a recent paper, uh, which you can actually pull up on my Facebook page, um, written by an undergraduate at Emory. She's a smart cookie. Uh, all about the ethics of what happens when they get really good at this, and they're going to. What happens when they can analyze it and say, oh, hold on a second. We can actually see way more than just did you have this reaction. We can start pulling information from it you don't know you've given us. Right, which wow. seems to always be the case whenever you let anyone have any information anymore, right? The, Correct, the, and, and then the, the issue becomes, you know, if you give it to law enforcement or you give it to a medical, you know, who, who can then say with a subpoena, I want that information, or without a subpoena say, I want that information. Um, so that's, you know, you can hack this information. I, I thought that was a really interesting development. And the funny part is I'd heard about brain prints for years, but this really put it in a context for me that I can actually use as a novelist, but also in a sense of, wow, they've come a lot farther in the last several years than I realized. Well, what's interesting about that is that what you're describing sounds like a potential, an, another potential real security threat for us. I mean, uh, just a whole, you know, exponential layer above any, any we've talked about before because we're talking about access right into the brain. But but the brain prints will probably be sold to us as a, a way of ensuring your identity, right, of ensuring that you, you, you can't be um, spoofed or... They'll be you, sold I, to I, us to protect us. To protect us, right. I mean, I, I, yeah, exactly. So it's it's just, you know, it seems to be a very common pattern we're running into, which is which is we, we want to be safe from this kind of stuff, so we'll take steps to be safe from this kind of stuff, and it makes it worse, right? <laughs> it puts us in an, <laughs> potentially even a, a worse position than, than we were in before. And security is one of the big themes, obviously, in the book when you talk about technology related to security. I, I, in fact, let's talk, let's talk for a minute just about some of the interesting kind of technologies driving the world that, that Major Tom lives in. Blockchain is huge. It's a huge part of this story. And one of the things that I found really interesting about this was I keep hearing, you know, well, blockchain is going to be great because you're going to have, you know, this ledger. And so you'll always know who did what. And it's always going to be 100% reliable. And we don't have to worry anymore once we have blockchain. And I think you completely deconstructed that about, what, 20 pages into the book, right? It's like... Yeah. Uh, now, now I will tell you. I don't you, feel so good about blockchain lot, anymore. I got to say. Well, I will also tell you that that I'm in the minority in my view that the blockchain is not sacrosanct. Um, and here's some interesting stuff that literally just happened this past week. So one of the things, and again, it's not really ruining anything, is but I talk about what's referred to as the 51% attack, which is if more than 51% of the mining computers decide, oh no, we want to change the blockchain. We want to fork the blockchain and come up with an entirely different um, ledger 
If more than 51% of the computers decide to do that, they can. So one of the things I talk about, when this, again, this is, not, this is not news to people who study the blockchain, is that China has had well over 51% of the miners already right. um, internationally. Uh, they also, the reason that is, is they can, they manufacture the chips. They have virtually free energy, especially where they build these bunkers in cold areas, which keeps the server farms cool, and mm -hmm. with hydroelectric power um, that is free uh, on land that's owned by the government. So for the longest time, China was really just chugging along being the miners to the world for the blockchain. Right. And then this week, they announced that they were making the uh, Bitcoin, which is, of course, the currency attached to the biggest, most original blockchain, which is what right. they were mining. Bitcoin was going to be made illegal. Right. Um, and one of the things I'd been warning people for a while was wait till both China and Russia were developing their own currencies, their mm -hmm. own national cryptocurrencies. And that's not to say I'm not telling everybody, sell your Bitcoin, because the world is big enough that we can have multiple cryptocurrencies. Right. But what's going to happen is all that mining is going to be devoted to their national cryptocurrency. So instead of having a 51% attack, which I posit in my book, uh, China's basically just turned around and said, yeah, we're, you know, we're, just, we're going our own way because we'd like to keep our, our, our finances in our country. Right. Interesting. You know, when you describe it in those terms, one of the things that makes me think is, well, everyone who's so excited about blockchain, basically they're excited about having China run the world's monetary system, right? I mean, isn't that kind well, of what Well, this is exactly down? it. And, and, and this is something I do have a little bit of fun with in the book, is that perpetual optimism of technology developers. Yeah. That they really don't want to see how people work. And when I've gotten into arguments with these people, some of which have been on your show, um, it always comes down to them believing, well, the world should work that way. Right. And I, as, as you can tell in my writing, I'm very much, sweetie, uh, the world would be lovely if it worked that way, but guess what? The world actually works this way. <laughs> and, and if anyone is going to take advantage of a situation, it's going to happen. So as the world becomes more complex with more avenues to make ethical choices about how a technology is going to be used, there will be more and more ways where people do it wonderfully and do well and in an ethical manner, and more and more ways where they will do it in a scumbag, horrible, I cannot believe we've let this happen manner. Right. Um, so the thing is, if you, if you want to be ready for the future, you've really got to think about both sides of those things, right? I mean, you, you, you can't yeah. just – well, I, I, on the one hand, I kind of see where these folks are coming from, PJ, because we're all having a really fun time, and you come in and just totally kill the buzz. Okay, oh, I am such a Debbie Downer man. Ugh. Um, <laughs> but here's the funny part. The funny part is I actually don't consider myself a techno-pessimist at all, uh, but I also don't see myself as a relentless techno-optimist. I just look at myself – I think I've always called myself a techno-realist – and that I try to look at both sides of what can happen with something that's really cool, really cool. Right, right. And hopefully me telling the dramatic conflict 
Laden story where people do bad things with the technology will allow us to all look at the technology and say, okay, you know what? That actually could happen. Maybe we should institute this. As opposed to blithely running out and saying, hello, everybody, I have cryptocurrencies. Um, I think cryptocurrencies are fantastic. I think they are the future of the world. No question. I simply believe that not enough has been done to secure their validity. Right. Well, I also feel that, you know, it's it's a really interesting paradigm, but it's not the final one, perhaps. Right. I mean, Correct. somebody came up. Somebody came up with blockchain, and it's great, and it's awesome. But what are we going to come up with ten years from now, twenty years from now? You know, I, exactly. I think the, the the idea that it's the be all and end all, I, I have a hard time with. And and I tend to be a very optimistic person about technology and the future. I must say, you know, that's kind of what this show is really all about. Is we we come on and we talk about all the great stuff that potentially can happen. Although we try to spend about twenty percent of our time talking about all the incredibly crappy, scary stuff that, that can happen. But there's something about Pare- the, the Pareto more, rule, right? That's the, it's the Pareto <laughs> rule. That's right. 80, 20. That's yeah, right. 80, 20, about a fifth, a fifth of our time. We try to, we try to spend on the, on the bad stuff. I don't see the enthusiasts for blockchain doing that. Right. I, you know, I, I, the, the folks who really promote it, cause I read a lot of this stuff. I mean, it's all over my Facebook these days. I, I don't see them ever saying, well, wait, now, one thing we got to think about, right? It's it's it is a relentless. This is awesome vibe, right? I mean, it's 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 very much a kind of a late '90s feel that's that's going on in that space right now. And I, it's I don't actually know, why I, I I love a guy named James D'Angelo, and I highly recommend people watch his stuff on YouTube. It's a little out of date right now. Um, he I don't think he's come back and made any recent videos, but he at least. He's both an enthusiast, but he's also the person who goes, yeah, 51% attack, totally possible. We have to really think about this. Anyway, uh, he goes on and talks about you know, the, the really amazing things that the blockchain is capable of. Um, and, and to me, that's really the key, is I want people to know what's coming, but I also don't want them to go blithely and blindly into a situation where they're just not thinking of the consequences. And to me, my, my mission in life, my actual literal mission, is I want people to understand what's coming and start thinking about what they can do about it. And they have choices. Yes, history moves on with or without you, but at some point you have choices to demand from, let's say, your cryptocurrency company, hey, your security needs to be better. Um, hey, how come th- this sounds really nice, but isn't that really easy to get into? And we're still seeing that with the blockchain. You know, we're still seeing thefts in the, in, in cryptocurrencies, um, where everyone says, "No, no, no, can't happen." Uh, but we're still seeing these things. So, I I just wish, as you said, that these incredibly relentlessly optimistic people who have their own mission, which is to make currency democratic and universal. I totally understand it. They, they, I understand what they, the problems they have with fiat currencies. I get it. Um, but they have to start looking at the other side as well. Um, but that goes for all the, the, the technologies I talk about, what, you know, brain technologies and weapon technologies and all of it. 
Well, that's going to do it for part one of our three-part interview with PJ Manny. This will continue on Wednesday and Friday of this week, so please join us on Wednesday for another brand new show with part two of our interview with PJ Manny. And until next time, live to see it. <laughs> <laughs>